the podcast where we sip and spill. Welcome, welcome, welcome to this episode of Tea with Key. So happy to have you listening today. I have someone very, very special with me today. Go ahead and introduce yourself to the people. Uh, thank you, Keandra. My name is Jojo. I'm a third year medical student, but most importantly, I'm a friend of Keandra <laughs> and a guest on Tea with Key, best believe. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, I appreciate you so much. Didn't you say you literally just got out of clinic? I did. I did just get out of clinic. I'm on my pediatrics rotation. So I saw a lot of babies, a lot of adolescents. And, and that is why, I, like I said, when I reached out to you and you said that you wanted to be on the show, I was so, so excited. But before we dive into the meat and potatoes of what we're going to talk about, y'all know how we do. We sip and we spill. So let me tell y'all what I am ship, 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 sipping on tonight. Okay, so I got me a piping hot cup of turmeric ginger tea. And let me tell y'all, let me, I'm gonna go ahead and take, take a little sip right, right now, right now, right now, before we actually, you know, get it, get it on and popping. Mm. It is sip, sip, sip. Oh man, and I put some honey in it too. Ooh, it is, it is, it is the move. And also it's caffeine free because we'll talk, we'll talk, y'all. It is getting closer to my bedtime right now, not gonna lie, but JoJo out in Cali. Three hours behind. You know how we do. <laughs> San Fran. I was about to say San Fran in the building, but I can't say that because you're not from San Fran because you're from, do you consider, okay, so like when you say where you're from, do you just say like, I'm from Costa Mesa or do you say Orange County or do you just say like California or what? You know, it's all dependent on where I'm at. So when I was in high school, very, you know, local, regional, I'd say I'm from Costa Mesa. But then when I went to college in the Northeast, it was very much so <laughs> Southern California. <laughs> And now, now I say Orange County. I think okay. that's, um, I'm at a halfway point, I guess. I feel that. I feel that. Um, well, are you sipping on anything tonight? Or what you, what you doing? I know, I know you said you left clinic, but what you up to now? I am, you know, unwinding, taking care of myself and preparing for the next day. Mm-hmm. And what am I, what I'm sipping on? You're sipping on some piping hot tea while I'm sipping on some ice cold coffee. <laughs> <laughs> When I have people on the show, I like to give my listeners, you know, a little, little bit of a, a little insider on how I got to, you know, know people. So I want to ask you, do you remember the first time that we met? I'm trying to think of the first time we met. Did we meet the first time at RPCC Dining Hall? I don't know if it was the first time, but I just know because you were living with someone and your roommate had a friend who also lived in my dorm and we were the same major at the time. And that's how we linked. And it's interesting because, you know, it's 2020 and you were one of the first friends that I made at Cornell freshman year, first semester, and we still kicking it, fam. I know that's like a dream come true. I think a lot of people go to college and they think about their friends they made in the first semester and how that's kind of dropped really by the, like the end of the second semester. But, you know, I was lucky and blessed to have a good solid group of friends that I made during the first week of school till now. Um, and we live on different coasts. Isn't that crazy? Exactly. Well, that's the thing too. I mean, even when I was abroad, five hour difference, we were still chatting. We still got the group chat. We still do our little, you know, video calls and whatnot and yeah you know it'll be later for us here but hey what can I say you're worth staying up for I mean it's amazing and I think a lot of times even with like long distance 
long distance friendships, people always kind of bring up the phrase, well, you know, it's not about whether you're in your lives all the time, but when you link back up, it feels like you never left. But <laughs> despite despite the physical distance, there's a message from one of us, like at least 10 times a day. Oh yes, most definitely. And I would like to say, I, if I had to like say who, I would say we're Shay because <laughs> sometimes like I see things on Twitter and I, you know, LQTM, but I may not share it. But Rache is the one like, she will be like, I saw this on Twitter or she'll be like, hey, do you guys wonder about, or hey, my job, da 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 And I'm like, oh yeah, da 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 you know? So math facts. Math facts. All the facts, all the facts. And can we just please like revisit last year when we all came to San Fran for your birthday and all of our skin was glowing and it was just, oh, and getting to meet your other friends in medical school. That was really, uh, that was an A1 at time. It was amazing. I think when you're, when like two, you know, friend groups from different time points in your life can come together and it's just, you know, it gels so easily. I think it just speaks to the group of people I chose to be in my life. Yes, indeedy. Yes, indeedy. Shoot. Well, JoJo, we know why we are here virtually together today. My first question to you is, how has your experience as a Black man in a predominantly white field been in regards to your learning experiences in the classroom or virtual classrooms, as well as actually being in clinic? Mm. You know, that's a good question and I can like really ramble on about different, you know, what it's like to be a black man in the different facets of medical school. You know, being a black man in a predominantly white area or just being a minority in general is like nothing new. I grew up in Orange County and then I went to, you know, an Ivy League school in the Northeast. But I think what I've experienced in medical school is that it's an entirely new feeling when you're, you're kind of a minority in the career you went to like you aspire to be in especially in a field that is trying its best to actively talk about racial disparities it's like that feeling it's almost like that feeling when you're in high school and you're talking about slavery and everyone turns around <laughs> to look at you because you're black and i don't know it's 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 weird to hear all these conversations oh it's not weird but it's different to hear these conversations about black people and kind of at a grand or a societal level, but you're just kind of the individual sitting there. And I feel like there's this added weight of like not only being a medical student, which is tough in it of it in itself, but to also be a black medical student and to feel like there's so many people and so many patients out there that are hurting due to the racial inequities and disparities that exist within our country. And then there's also this added pressure to create the path for those after you. And a lot of my friends and I have spent so much, so much time on behalf of our university and on, you know, on behalf of ourselves, I guess, to kind of create that pipeline and really build a strong sturdy pipeline of undergraduates and even high school students um, to go to medical school if that's what they want to do. Mm -hmm. And so I look back and I think, I think about, you know, all the work I spent, you know, kind of looking behind and looking about my path to medical school and ensuring, you know, that it's a little bit easier for the generation after me that sometimes I forget to like look forward almost mm -hmm. and to focus on my own career and focus on what interests me. I can't specialize in mentorship. <laughs> <laughs> I have to specialize Facts. within a field. Um, and I spent the kind of the past year kind of focusing more on, you know, my interests. And I realized that time is really limited in medical school. So I think just being a black man, there's just a lot of 
there's a lot of different roles you hold in addition to just being a medical student. But to summarize, I feel like those weights are one, being a medical student, two, you know, ensuring and forging a path for the generations that come after you, and three, feeling like, you know, you're expected to be an expert in racial disparities to really educate your classmates. And, you know, a lot of the physicians who are, weren't taught this in school or medical school kind of look to you and sometimes you just don't have the answers and mm-hmm. you're, you're like, I'm just trying to live my life. That's, that's, that's fact. I think you brought up a lot of good points that are definitely relatable. I mean, the last one specifically, as far as, you know, when we are looked at as people of color to have all of the answers when it comes to why we are being faced with such oppression and why our people are suffering due to the racial inequalities that do exist. I think it's very disheartening because yes, we should, we should hold the expectations for everyone to understand hey, what what you see in a patient or what you see in like a certain group of people, if you see, if you see a problem, you should yourself take the initiative to look into it and not just turn to the only Black person that is in the room. You shouldn't have to have that weight on your shoulders. It's definitely not fair to you because you're not only facing this oppression, but also having to explain it at the same time. When, of course, you're working underneath people who have been in the field much, much longer and have had several opportunities. There are always opportunities to learn about what problems exist and being able to, on their own, say, hey, this is an issue we need to, we need to take action. And it's, it's interesting. I I think the, I think you really hit home when you said, you know, you can't specialize in mentorship, but you know, it's, it's, it's like, you do want to hope that the next generation is going to be better off, but yes, at the same time, you as an individual are in medical school your name is going to eventually be on that degree. You are going to be a medical doctor. But at the same time, I do think it's, it's, it's admirable. And also I feel like it's something that is necessary to have that moral component of being able to look at you know, the younger generation, not necessarily like younger in terms of like, you know, M1 or M2, but, you know, people, like you said, who, you know, are in high school, or maybe they are an undergrad who are looking to pursue, you know, a career within the medical field. But, you know, I think, I think we can all appreciate the fact that you are trying to balance that because it shows that you not only care about what you want to do in your impact in the medical field, but also being able to see other people of color and knowing that we were not always given the opportunity to be, you know, in, in such a fortunate place as we are, you know? Yeah, and I know it's, it's kind of scary. And, you know, I always think about, you know, Black people have been in this country, you know, pretty much since inception. And I think it's so intimidating to look at the people in your career, in your field, and you don't see that. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes that's almost forgotten because when we talk about, you know, the, the diversity in this country, you know, we think of, you know, a lot of people immigrating to the United States. It's a melting pot or soup. Uh, I guess melting pot is outdated. <laughs> Wait, is we, it? Yeah, because I, I think, side note, I guess like um, sometimes people view the melting pot as like an, like assimilation and rather than like, you know, multiculturalism. 
Oh yeah. Oh, that's mm, that's a whole other conversation. Ooh. Yeah. So, uh, but I think you know when we think about the diversity of America, a lot of times we think about immigrants. You know, my parents included their immigrants and in, you know to this country, and a lot of times you know people can make that assumption. Well, this wrong assumption. Let me clarify this wrong assumption. Well, you know, there's not a lot of people in the field because you know they they they've just moved to this country. But you know, black people, black American, you know, descendants of slavery the institution have been here since the beginning and i think that is just very very disturbing Mm -hmm. it is it is it is definitely a factor that unfortunately people are not recognizing still has lasting impacts today you know we were never given an equal chance we are still not given equal chances we may in terms of the law on paper quote unquote be free but we are not given the same freedoms when it you know comes to and this is just one case you know when we're talking about when we're talking about the medical field healthcare professionals and I, I want to go back to another point you said which if you don't want me asking I kind of want to dive into a little bit. So when you were talking about when you have patients that come in who are people of color and in cases where you know that their suffering is an effect of the racial disparities that do exist. How do you carry yourself in clinic knowing these things? And how do you, after you see your patients, how do you process or or what, what actions do you take in terms of um, whether it be talking to your, your colleagues, your, the people that you have to report to, or, or do you talk to, you know, the, do you talk to the clients directly or or I, I kind of want to. I kind of want to get into your head when I enter, you know, the exam room, and I see a black person or a person of color. Most of the time, this instantaneous connection that we kind of have for each other, and in in my dialogue, I think I give a lot of space, you know, for my patients just express what their priority or their concerns are, mm-hmm. um, and we kind of build this silent trust amongst each other. And I think that's a privilege that I have, being mm-hmm. able to connect um, with my patients you know, that look like me. And it's funny, like, when I look back, I think about, you know, my first clinical encounters I had, or the first time I transitioned from the classroom to the clinic, you know, I was kind of lacking in that clinical knowledge, you know, of all the different diseases and the, uh, the treatments and management processes. But one thing I did know just through experience of life is just really prioritizing your patient and just seeing what, what they want. And it's as simple as saying, you know, what are your priorities for this visit? And oftentimes, a lot of the stress and pains that people are dealing with aren't directly tied to, I guess, a medical condition. Oh, well, it can be, but in kind of an outpatient clinic, you know, there's a lot of stressors that are directly linked to their health that are due to their income, their housing, their family, a lot of things that our history as a country kind of determine. And so I think back to this one time where I walked into a patient with this, uh, walked into a room with this one patient who is there for just a blood pressure check. And if I was focused mm-hmm. on her blood pressure, I would have just went in, measured her blood pressure, you know, asked what her diet and her exercise regimen would be, you know, based off, just based off kind of like the book, based off what we learn in the textbooks. Yeah. But I think, you know, when I asked, or like, what are your concerns? She's like, I'm dealing with a lot of stress. 
she wasn't saying I'm dealing with a lot of hypertension. <laughs> she mm -hmm. was saying I'm dealing with a lot of stress. And she went on to tell us, tell me and my colleague about how she received a new landlord who raised the rent and was essentially just gentrifying the neighborhood and removed her parking spot that was right outside, right outside her apartment. And keep in mind, she was really physically limited and needed that parking spot, but was kicked out of that parking spot and had to park a block down, rendering it just kind of inaccessible. Because it was inaccessible, she had a parking ticket for leaving it there for multiple days and was just piling on these fees because she was physically not able to you know, reach that car. And this was leading to a lot of stress in her life, a lot of headaches. And you could just see just within this clinical visit, the amount of stress she was feeling. And I think giving her the space to just speak and explain what her priorities are, I think really just spoke to how many problems that, you know, doctors can't really treat within the clinic. But I think luckily we're in a we're in a space in this country where our career is like really revered and we're kind of granted like space and all these sectors and different spheres that, you know, we may not even be experts in, but to provide a kind of healthcare perspective, I think, I think we kind of owe, if we care, if we truly care about the health of our patients, like advocacy is so important. And I think kind of siloing in, focusing in on the end result of those stressors, the hypertension and not focusing on the root, the problem's not gonna go away anytime soon. Mm -hmm. And I actually, I take that back where I said there, there's not much, you know, we can do other than advocacy. I think there's very direct, there's direct, direct actions that I've learned along the way that you can take to really advocate for your patients. The powers of the doctor's note. Think of how many times in life where a doctor's note, you know, was just trusted. Mm -hmm. About how you're so nervous to get a doctor's note. And then in the end, you just get a little slip of paper with a signature. <laughs> And it's kind of like, you know, no questions asked. Exactly, uh, exactly. So if you need to be absent at an obligation or work or whatever, it may be prioritizing your health because as we all know, if you don't have your health, then what do you have? That it's, 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 and it's kind of sad, sorry, and just to go, on, go off on another tangent, you know, I think a lot of times people's anger or frustration is really misinterpreted. I think, the, you know, the most oppressed, most marginalized people have very little space for stress in their lives. And sometimes I see, whether with staff or whoever, that this, you know, anger, frustration is taken very personally. Sometimes it's hard to empathize for people's frustration if they don't know the reason. Mm -hmm. And so my kind of true. approach to things is there's always a reason. There's always a reason for someone to feel the way they feel, mm -hmm. whether I'm aware of it or not. I, I think the example that you gave was definitely something that like, I feel like when you, when you say that you want to be able to understand the root of problems and not the end problems, that's definitely key. People are seeking professional help because of whatever their health condition is. There, there is, there is a cause they want help, but also we need to look at the factors that are not only affecting us physically, but socially as well. And of course that could be a conversation that we dedicate a whole, not even episode, but podcasts, <laughs> podcasts on podcasts about the knowledge that you have about this. Like you said, when you're, you know, talking to people who are looking into pursuing the medical field, being able to also share the knowledge that you have so that when we are having these conversations with the future doctors as yourself, that, you know, we're talking about this, but let's, let's, let's kind of transition. So I know that you definitely are an A1 mentor. I know you, I've known you for undergrad. I've seen what you've been doing in medical school. I've listened to you talk about the progress you've made, but 
let's talk about the people that are helping you along the way. I want to talk about mentors. First of all, do you have a mentor or more than one mentor? And how did you go about finding a mentor or did they seek you out? I want to know. So I think the best mentor is having multiple mentors. And and I'm not saying, you know, hit up everyone and their mama, but (laughs) I think understanding that you can never get everything you need from one person. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's about it's sometimes it's about asking people, you know, who's a great mentor, if that makes sense. Who was your mentor or yeah, who's a great person to reach out to if you're interested in X, Y and Z. And it's funny, you can mentor people for so many years without really trying to actively find your own mentors along the way. <laughs> but one thing I've definitely learned in medical school is that the best mentor is multiple mentors and mm-hmm. someone that you can build trust within. You know, there's different forums and advice that you can get from advisors. Correct. Um, but it's one thing to get mentorship from someone who's invested in your success, S- someone who cares about your life and how you're doing that week. That's true. I think I think having someone you can trust, someone that you can approach in an unfiltered manner, someone that you can someone that you can like figure things out with along the way. Mm-hmm. I definitely think it's important to have mentors that look like you, that understand what you're going through. Mm-hmm. One thing I learned in medical school is when you're looking for mentors, don't limit yourself on if they are the same race as you, especially if you're entering a field and career where there's not that many people that look like you to begin with. Mm-hmm. So being open to the mentors. I mean, as you said, the best mentor is many mentors. So being able to talk to people who, yes, at the end of the day, you share the common interest of being a medical professional, but who take up different spaces. Right. And I think that's definitely having having some mentors is better than having no mentors. Oh, most definitely. Most definitely. You know, it's like, uh, obviously, you got your textbooks, you have the internet, you have, you know, clinic time, you have all of that, but also being able to talk one on one with people who have been in the game for so long, especially in a field that's always changing, seeing where we were, seeing where we are now and seeing where we're going into the future. I mean, hey, the knowledge that, you know, one person has in their head could take you so far and being able to just have those conversations, it's priceless, you know? And, so, and, you know, and if I could give advice, actually, when reaching out for a mentor, have that initial conversation, but afterwards be very forthright with winning mentorship. Asking someone to be a mentor really sets the expectations and, you know, kind of is the branch, the, the starting point of a new relationship, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You, if you really want mentorship from this someone, then I think it's important for them to understand that this is just like a one-time conversation. I think it's very important to be being very blunt and asking them to be your mentor like in those words. Mm-hmm. I think there's Straight a difference forward. between meeting meeting up with someone for advice, which is usually how we initially contact people. But mm-hmm. I think afterwards, you'd be like, you know, I'm interested in X goal. You know, will you be my mentor and help me you know, reach that goal? I think it really, you know, really kind of sets the tone mm-hmm. and allows for that relationship to really grow. Most definitely. I mean, I think you you said it best when you were saying that a mentor being someone that actually cares about your success so yes not just like a one-time 
hey, I got a question, didn't feel like going to Google or couldn't find the answer, <laughs> but being able to actually have those ongoing conversations because, you know, this, this is going to be your life. Okay. You are a medical student, but you know, you're gonna, you know, have your residency. Being able to talk to someone who is going to be with you either physically or virtually and be able to see you grow into the doctor that you will come to be. Being able to have those sit downs and say, I care about what your future looks like and I want to help you get to where you need to be. Or even in cases where I'm sure there are people in medical school who they know they want to be a doctor, but they don't know exactly what you know they want to do. So being able to also talk to them about the opportunities that they have and just, just really being with you along this path because this this is this is what you're gonna do. This is what you're putting your heart into, what you're putting your life into, what you're gonna exactly. be every day focusing on, you know? Exactly. Being able to talk to someone who truly understands. Yeah. So this is something that kind of sparked my interest when you know we were originally talking, you know, you you called me and you were like, hey, you know, tea with key. And I think in a world where the internet is so accessible and we have all these platforms, I, I kind of want to talk about what your take is on people in the medical field using social media as a platform to showcase community engagement. Is it in, is it encouraged that you you take a stance on your health issues on social media? What is the expectation of healthcare professionals in their engagement with people in regards to social media? Are they encouraged to take a stance? Is it frowned upon? Are they supposed to give guidance within the boundaries of, you know, their practice or or, or what, what does that look like? I know it's funny that you asked. Um, in the first two years of medical school, we got a lecture on, you know, quote unquote professionalism and how to engage in social media. And a lot of it is kind of centered around, uh, a lot of it was kind of centered around, you know, how your posts, you know, are accessible to patient and how the pictures you post and the opinions uh, you make may reflect your employer. But it's kind of funny because in the following year, I'm in my third year now, there was this huge influx of medical students, residents, healthcare providers in general on social media, really taking their thoughts and their opinions to Twitter, almost kind of setting this new norm of, you know, engagement uh, and this dialogue. And there's even, they even kind of refer to themselves as their own community, like on Twitter as like Med Twitter. And Med Twitter. I actually, yeah, that's a, hashtag you know, Med I haven't Twitter. heard that. Med Twitter. <laughs> yes, hashtag Med Twitter. Okay. Um, yeah, so there's kind of this been this huge influx of people sharing their thoughts and opinions, their platitudes on different really different, like anything, like research topics, medical conditions, uh, advocacy. And, you know, what I've noticed, I, what I've noticed is a lot, even TikTok, there's a lot of different healthcare providers and medical students on TikTok. And I think it's kind of allowing all these people in this kind of, you know, really STEM heavy field to be like creative, mm -hmm. you know, giving them the space to do something that, you know, was considered unprofessionalism, you know, not too long ago. So I, th I think in that sense, it's kind of changing the norms and of like social media engagement. Mm -hmm. 
you see a lot of people engaged in social media and kind of realms that they weren't in before. Though what I've learned throughout the COVID-19 pandemic is that people still view the things you say the same as if they would um, hear it in clinic. So what you say in clinic versus what you see online is still viewed and regarded with the same trust, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Understandable. Before there was much evidence about COVID-19, people were kind of online saying, well, you know, you know, the flu kills X amount of people in a year, you know, you sh- like you should be more concerned about that. But that was viewed with, I feel like that, those statements were viewed with the same kind of trust as if they were viewed in clinic. Mm-hmm. And then what you saw very quickly after that was that this is not the same as the flu. Correct. It was interesting. There was something I saw on Twitter when people were saying, you know, three times as deadly. And a tweet said, if I gave you a bag of Skittles, a hundred Skittles, and I told you three of these Skittles could kill you, would you take the risk and still eat the bag? <laughs> wow the world we live in the world we live in skittles for real no no, just it's interesting because i've also in this pandemic been on twitter much more than any other year (laughs) of my life and it was interesting people making analogies that everyone could understand you know jameson he's four years old he loves skittles love candy that analogy he can understand you know and i think that's that's the that's a beautiful side of it like engaging engaging communities engaging people who are really removed almost like from the healthcare environment Mm -hmm. because everyone's on twitter but not everyone goes to the doctor exactly and i think there's a lot there's a lot more um there's a lot of change kind of leading towards online medicine and telehealth and i would not be surprised that if in in 20 years people are using twitter as a means to get connected or to find physicians online and if not twitter some other social media platform that would actually that would actually be interesting if there was a social media platform where doctors could just like go and well webmd exists but you can't talk to them if there was like a social media platform well i guess that is what teledocs are but then again you gotta like schedule an appointment like in advance but i was really just thinking because (laughs) I definitely have had a teledoc appointment since COVID started. And it's interesting because, you know, before COVID, we would generally go in person, you know, 100% of the time. And it's interesting. Do you think that even after COVID, that teledoc appointments will be as readily available for certain appointments that don't require going into the office? I think so, for sure. And I think that there's a lot of like capabilities within telemedicine to speed up clinical care. I think the pandemic has really hastened and like built up the infrastructure for telemedicine in uh, just in hospitals and in clinics. I think before the telemedicine like software that was used initially was like you know all these complex systems. Um, where even people would have to go to an office to like engage in telemedicine or go to another clinic to like reach a provider that was miles and miles away. It was a lot more focused and based in, you know, rural, rural like areas getting connected to like large academic centers and urban city environments. But now we see, you know, these telehealth appointments over Zoom. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that not everything warrants a visit in, uh, to the clinic or the hospital. Sometimes it's just a follow-up just to make sure things are going well. And I think now that we've kind of built up this infrastructure and the resources to 
have people engage in telemedicine, I can imagine it like really like, you know, picking up clinical care because not a lot of like a lot of times missed appointment are because people just don't have the bandwidth. They like they have no one to look over their child or they can't take time off work. Mm -hmm. But I think like being at work and being able to take 30 minutes you know, off to just do a quick visit, just to, you know, zoom like a rash you have or to show that, you know, things are, you know, improving or doing better can really speed up care. But I, I am cautious, you know, over an, an over-reliance or dependence on telemedicine can really exclude people who don't have high-speed internet or smartphones or computers to really like engage in like Zoom. Like, I think at first when clinics went 100% virtual at different, like, sites in the nation, there was a lot of people who just didn't have the infrastructure or the money to, like, engage in telemedicine. And sometimes I would think, like, is this is this delaying their care? Is this causing them more time waited before they can get treatment? Yeah, that's valid because not everyone has access to internet or even if they do, the quality across the board is not the same. So it definitely would seem that, yes, adopting telehealth appointment availability is necessary, was necessary for the circumstances that are present, but also understanding that there does need to be a mixed approach and not 100% this or 100% that. But having the structures in place for there to be the option to have a teleappointment, but not solely relying on them. Yeah, exactly. You hit it on the nail. See, I, I, I mean, I like my telehealth appointment. <laughs> have you ever, have you had a telehealth appointment? <laughs> yeah, I have. And I mean, for like different like problems I'm facing, like a lot of times it's always sad. A lot of times it's like, well, I'm not feeling, I'm not feeling the problem I was feeling when I go to the doctor's office. I'm just like, great. I could just done this over the phone. <laughs> oh, that's definitely true. That actually, um, okay. So not the same exact case, but this always happens with my mother. And so our vet, like our literally our, our lifelong vet, she recently retired, but the dogs would be having a problem. And then, yeah, we take them to the vet and they wouldn't have the problem anymore that it, or it wouldn't be as severe. And this, this would, and you know, we've, we've had a few dogs um, over the years and yeah, my mom would be like, trust me, I'm not lying. Or what's that thing? Munchausen's or whatever. We're like moms make their children sick on purpose to get attention. She was like, I don't have this. No one ever accused her, but she was just, you know, saying, cause it, it, yeah. it, it, it kept happening to like different dogs, like a problem would pop up. So I definitely understand where you're coming from where you're like, okay, I feel like something's off something's wrong I need to make an appointment but then by the time you schedule your appointment and you actually go in it's like okay well it's not as bad but hey I'm here because I'm at the appointment <laughs> no I and it, as our generation gets older and gets our you know long-awaited health issues like I think we'll be a, a lot more adept than using different technologies to communicate that is the hope that is the hope the future does look bright and with people like you in the field i know that we'll be able to accomplish all of our goals ah shucks the future is <laughs> not dependent on me though okay you know what i mean it's not dependent on you but just saying people like you who actually care who follow through who support other people you are a part of a cloth that I want to hold on dearly to. I love you so much, Jojo. <laughs> well, I'm stuck to you like the gum on your shoe. I, I ain't going nowhere. You know, I have not actually heard that phrase, but it does make sense. Although... <laughs> 
I might be <gasps> mad if I stepped in gum. Well, not if they were old shoes. The point is, this is the point in the show where I ask you, for the people listening, I know we've talked about a lot of things, but for your takeaway points, what do you want the listeners to remember the most? You know, there's so many socioeconomic disparities for people of color out there, but they're not going to go away overnight. And I really commend as Black folk and people of color working to, you know, rectify those issues every day. So I just really encourage you know, y'all to find your happiness and never lose sight of your interests and find those mentors to make your dreams, you know, reality. Thank you, Jojo. I am so appreciative that we were able to have a conversation today. Thank you so much for being a guest on Tea with Key. And I really think that people who are in your shoes, people who want to be in your shoes, or even other people of color who, you know, may not be interested in the medical field, but understand what issues we face, I really think will definitely be able to get so much out of what we discussed today. I love you, Jojo. Love you, Kiki. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Tea with Key.